up next on Inside the SCCA, racing cars and bikes and writing books with Stephanie Funk. Our guest today is a road racer driving a Honda CRX in SCCA's H production class. She's also a motorcycle racer and an author. She's a two-time SCCA Northeast Majors champion, a North Atlantic road racing champion, and a Northeast division champion. She's also finished 10th and 12th in two runoffs appearances. Stephanie Funk is our guest on Inside the SCCA. How are you, Steph? I'm fine, thank you, Brian. How are you? I am good. So... So Stephanie and I go back a long ways to Lime Rock Park way back in the, I want to say, 90s, early 2000s. Uh, I moved to New York in 99 and started working with New York region. Actually, I kind of worked my way through all the regions until I finally found a home in New York region. At one point, I was the flag chief in New York region. I think you were working for Lime Rock at that point, right? I was. I worked for them for quite a few years from 80s through late 90s, actually. Okay. Okay. So how did you find the SCCA? That's always the fascinating. I mean, we all have our story. Uh, how did you get to how did you get to us? I kind of took the long way around. Um, I found SCCA because I was racing horses. Is okay. Cliff's notes on that. I left high school and went straight into racing horses when I was like 18. So I was all up and down tracks in, in New England. And I would come back to the farm in Canaan, Connecticut periodically. And I needed a job when I was back there. So where would I go for a job? Lime Rock Park. Right. Right. You're at the track, you go to the track. And when I started going there, my sister, my oldest sister, Karen Peterson, was was grid chief. She kept saying to me, oh, come down to the races, come down, come down. You know, I was already working there. So at first I was kind of like, you know, it's a long day. I've got things to do. But I started getting really interested in the racing. And then I began, you know, there's a lot of lot of sanctioning bodies that were there. But I started really liking the vibe of SCCA. So sure. I started kind of hanging around at the end of the day and coming down on weekends when I had some time. And obviously I had free, free range over the entire property being as I worked there. So I could come in and, and start exploring and, and checking it out. Right. And little by little, they sank the hook and reeled me in. And I started as a worker with SCCA, grid worker. And I was flagging for Lime Rock Park. And that, that believe me, that was an adventure in itself. Of course. If, if you're learning how to flag and you are completely alone on a mound of dirt with a bunch of flags and a fire extinguisher going, oh, holy shit, please don't die. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Yeah. So now were you skip skip owned Lime Rock at that point, right? No, he did not. Okay. Uh, came in uh because I started there in 1980 was the first time okay. I was there. And I was back and forth. I'd be gone for a while, come back, work different jobs. Skip and the consortium came in, I want to say mid 80s i believe okay. mid to late 80s i was there in the in the you know jim haynes time got when, it when got it there. okay okay so what was it about the club that really got you interested to start i mean obviously you were invited but there has to be something about the club that makes people stay you know as long as we have stayed so what was it for you it started out with the cars i was i was pretty fascinated by the mix of cars because it's not just you know, not like NASCAR where they all look the same. And it also, the people were actually, they were really diverse. You had people who had deep pockets and had, you know, they had prep shops doing the work. And yet you had the guy building a car in his garage and he would show up. I mean, one of my earliest, <laughs> earliest memories was actually of the Carlson's, Scott Carlson, and, um, and showing up with Volvos. Sure. Towing, towing one Volvo with the other Volvo and a trailer behind it. And, um, you know, I watched them unload this car, go out and absolutely kick butt and then come back and shove it back on the open trailer and away they went. And it was kind of interesting to see that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's still the case in, in the club today. You know, it's, it's a combination of, you know, big time trans transporters Mm -hmm. with, with professional mechanics. I was actually at Button Willow back in November 
And there was a guy in with one of the most gorgeous FE2 formula cars mm. with an open trailer being pulled behind a, a Dodge Caravan. So mm-hmm. it was a soccer mom tow vehicle yep. with one of the fastest cars you were going to see that weekend being being towed behind it and one 10 by 10 easy up. And he was having a blast. Yeah. You know, and, and and both of those types of, of setups are welcome within the club. So, you know, they are. There. Cool. And I, I found a very diverse group of people within it and some really fascinating people. So, you know, at the end of the day, you'd go to the worker party and, and everybody come and mingle and you'd hear stories and meet people and talk to them. And it became, you know, you get kind of drawn further and further in. It became a racing family. Sure. sure. And before I knew it, I was they had me hook, line and sinker. And here I am. There you go. There you go. So what was your first thought? When did, when did the first seed plant in your head that I might want to get behind the wheel of a race car? Standing there on the stations when I was working for Lime Rock, watching people and really watching a corner, you know, all day on a Tuesday or half the day. Watching the skills involved, watching the passes, going at first from being a little bit like, oh, my God, I could die. To, <laughs> I could do that. To, could I do that? To, yeah, I think I could do that. And, uh, you know, as it, with anything, if you're immersed in it after a while, right. it becomes kind of second nature, like, okay. And you just kind of keep saying, yeah, sure, I'll try that. I'll do that. I'll, you know, and yeah. that's really that eases away for new drivers, new people to get into it. Sure, sure. So. The oh my God, I can die corner at Lime Rock is nine, isn't it? Uh, station 10 on top of the, on top of the downhill. Okay. Because they come down, the berm narrows it down. It's like, it was like a friggin' pinball arcade. Yeah. And then plus the, uh, the Bailey bridge was a lot lower then. Okay. And I can remember having cars come through West Bend losing wheels and they yeah, would yeah. lie down there. And I used to, t- I used to warn Butch. I said, you know, one of these days you're going to find me in the girders of the bridge, sticking the white flag out and surrender because I'm going to be hiding in there. <laughs> I remember what's the, what's it's, is it nine? That's the, the, the right-hander before you go up towards West Bend or before you uh, nine, nine or is, is eight, uh, eight, eight is top of the uphill. Okay. So, so eight is the, my, oh my God moment at Lime Rock when we were, when they used to have the NASCAR cars come through there oh God. And, and you would have, and NASCAR drivers mm-hmm. much more so 20 years ago, it was the NASCAR East series. It wasn't even the, the, the cup series or even Xfinity or the camping world truck series. It was like the East series. And these guys probably had never been on a road course today in their life. And they're coming around this corner up and, and literally the fast way around that corner is to aim straight at the flag station. Yeah. That's the fast way to go. And the first time I did it with my back to the, the traffic, because I was the yellow flagger, I thought that this was the end of my life uh-huh. and, and it could happen anytime that weekend. And thankfully nobody hit us. And that was fantastic. So, and, and that's the case for a lot of people is, is they get stuck on the adrenaline of standing on a corner closer than any spectator with any, with the most expensive ticket in the house will ever have at a racetrack. And, and that's what's, that's, that's how a lot of people get hooked. And yeah. we're going to, we're going to do a lot of stuff with flaggers and, and all the different specialties over the next couple of, however long we do this podcast. So I, I look forward to doing more on that. So what was your first time in a car? Was it a skippy car? Was it, how did you get going? Uh, yeah, I did. I did skip Barbara three day school in 1996. Okay. Um, I'm trying to remember my my now husband Ed, who I met through SCCA. He had a an open. We're gonna man. get to that. Yeah, we're gonna get to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> he put me in the car for back then. It was a solo at uh, New Hampshire. You know, doing a lap at a time, sure. and I was like, "Ooh, okay, oh yeah." And I can recall the first time I actually went out and did a a school in, in that car. And I believe it was Lime Rock. I remember coming in and being almost mad about it. Like, this is so much fun. I've heard so many people talk about it. Like it's, Oh my God, it's, you know, this, you have to be so brave and bold. Don't get me wrong. You got to have a certain amount of stupidity or bravery or both, but it was like the biggest amusement park ride I'd ever been on. It was, it was completely addicting at that point. Um, the Skippy school was a blast and they taught, they taught a lot in that school. 
Right. I learned so much in three days. It was well worth it. So. Yeah. I always tell people that, you know, the schools that the SSCA does are good schools. They teach you how to drive cars safely, understand the rules and all that kind of stuff. But if you want to take three, four years of learning through SCCA racing and smush it into three days, you know, go to either Skip Barber or Bondurant or any Mm -hmm. of the professional schools. They all, uh, you know, do things a little bit differently, but exactly the same. And you can learn more about controlling a car. And I also tell parents who have kids who have no desire to go racing to send their kids to one of these performance driving safety schools, because they're going to be safer on the streets by knowing what to do with the cars. So uh, I'm a big proponent of the pro schools. Uh, to get yourself started so and so now what what's the time frame for that for you uh 96 i did the skip barber school and then 98 i did my first stca school okay uh there was a gap in there i'm trying to remember the opal got wrecked oh at the longest day at nelson ledges it got wrecked we saved the radiator cap and put new parts under it and came up with another car and they they ran it in another longest day and then after that I was able to to use that in the STCA school once they sure. had the, the endurance race out of the way. Sure, sure. So, and we're going to get to the, the t- time frame deeper because this is your early, late 1990s. Your first trip to the runoffs is 2017. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the middle and, and, and we're was. going to get to that. So you mentioned it. We can't skip around it. Uh, your Your other half or yes. your, your lesser one quarter, as I like to refer to myself as, is, uh, is a racer. And yes, you, you all met at the racetrack. We did. How, we did. Tell us the story. Uh, the first time I met my now husband, I was dressed in a rent-a-cop suit. I was driving around on a rickety-ass golf cart with a little bubble light on it. I think I was spending my afternoon that day dragging people off golf carts and frisking them. But because there wasn't much else to do because I was, you know, I was working for quote unquote security for the track at the time. So I was basically an extra person if need be. And Ed was wearing a polar bear head and he was down in what's known as bee paddock. Uh, That was from polar beverages who was a sponsor at the time. And I remember pulling in on the golf cart with my little light going, my sister, Karen sitting there with me and Ed standing there just as calm as can be arms folded polar bear head. And I just kind of, you know, with a group of drivers, I believe, uh, I believe that was a driver's school and his friend Eric Strobel had just done his school in Ed's car. And uh, of course my sister's like, Oh, he's a veterinarian. I'm like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and I, I knew him for several years, but just on a hi, how are you kind of basis. So it, it took several years before we actually started, you know, talking to each other. So sure. Sure. But yeah. That was the first time I, first time I met him. <laughs> That's pretty great. That's pretty great. What's it like to be, you know, racing with your, your spouse? You know, I'm sure you had many race weekends where you were racing together, many race weekends where you were supporting him and he was supporting you. And what's that dynamic like? Cause I I mean, I tried to teach my wife how to golf and that that ended badly. So I can't imagine trying to teach her how to be a race car driver or you teaching him how to be a race car driver. It, um, there's a lot of nuances, uh, and at times I was worried, like, what's it going to be like if, or what, for a while we had cars in the same class mm-hmm. and we would race against each other, or we'd have cars that were in the same race group, like ITA and ITC or two ITC cars. I found out a couple of things. Um, first of all, because you're both in the same world, you understand it sure. and you know, when there's time to, you know, listen, be supportive and, and give them that support. And there's times when you can say, okay, put on your big girl panties and get out and do it now. It's time, put your suit on, get out. Um, so there's a little bit, you're a little less inclined to, not mollycoddle, but you understand what's going on. Sure. And there's times when we get out there and we are like super competitive against each other. <laughs> oh my God, I can remember being side by side with him at New Hampshire, racing an ITC together. Or a funny story at Watkins Glen, uh, we had the two ITC cars and he and Meg Meyer, she's fast. She's, she's a good driver. She's fast. And he and Meg were going at it hammer and tong. And I was back in third. They were in first, second. I was back in third. And I came down to the bus stop. The bus stop was gravel back then. Sure. 
And I, there's Ed belly pan deep in gravel in the bus stop. And my very first thought was, oh, and my second thought immediately was, <laughs> I'm in second now. Ah, I love it. <laughs> and he was afterwards, he's calling me his trophy. I'm his trophy wife because I collected a trophy that weekend. Nice. Then there was the time at New Hampshire when I won ITC, he won ITA. He waited down in pit lane for me and we did a side-by-side victory lap. Oh, so cool. That was very cool. Yeah, yeah. There was a time at New Hampshire when he wrecked and I saw him wreck and it was bad wreck. And my reaction was I got irate (laughs) because we just rebuilt the car. Yeah. And I, I had just, long story I won't bore you with, but I had just gotten right up on top of Fred White. He was leading. I was there. I saw Ed wreck. I was punching the roof of the car because I was kind of irate and they put us behind the pace car we're going around. He's standing down by the car and he waves and okay. then, okay. They turn us loose again. I, I ran poor Fred down, got the lead and then the igniter went in the car. Oh, my RPM started dropping. I was like, okay, now I have 5,000 RPMs. I have 4,000. I have 2000. I'm dead stick. Right. And then later we're talking about the whole thing. And Ed said, yeah, well, I saw you waving at me when you went by. And I was like, I didn't wave at you. No, I saw you wave. I said, let's look at my in-car video. <laughs> what, what I had done when he was standing, that poor bastard. I'm like looking at him and he's, he's waving, you know, I'm okay. Hey. I go by and I'm going, what the hell did you do? <laughs> That's good stuff. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, yeah, it never occurred to me. He might not be okay because the right. cage in the car is a stout and yeah. Obviously, that would be first concern. I saw him out of the car moving sure. around. Although I did find out later he broke ribs in it, so right. it was a right. it was a hit. That's a pretty good so, shunt. There's a pretty good dynamic there, but for the most part, both of us were always like super supportive of each other. And uh, one more quick story: Ed was out. This was at New Jersey. He was, I think, running the Civic. I'm in the top of that third story building. And there was a gentleman there, I won't name, but we knew him and he was on the radio and I heard him talking to his driver. And I realized that the driver he's talking to was in a car very close to Ed, but behind him. Mm. And I'm hearing this man telling this driver to hit cars to get him out of the way. He's walking back and forth in the building. Well, I started stalking back and forth behind him because if I heard him say to hit my husband, that radio was going off the building. (laughs) was going to it was going to be airborne i mean there was no doubt about it that radio was going to be gone and you know fortunately he didn't get close enough that was never an issue but that that was my reaction sure oh no you don't right so (laughs) did you ever have to have that roger penske discussion with each other like okay if we're racing each other we race each other hard but we both cars got to come home on the trailer with all four wheels on top of it was that ever a discussion with you guys no, because we both knew that 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 was going to be that we do the work on the cars. Sure. And we also both of us have always been clean drivers. Yeah. I mean, he pounded that concept home. And that that's a little something I'll get into after. That's something that SCCA used to be big on. It was right. it was gentleman racing. It was you had to race clean. You had to be sportsmanlike. You had to be. So if we were out there you know, no holds barred as far as making the passes and, and running so close, you couldn't put a sheet of paper between it, but never would we ever punt each other deliberately sure. or anybody deliberately. Sure. sure. And that's the way it should be, you know, and it I is. still think in the vast majority of situations, that's how the SCCA operates. There, For are, the most part. there are some people and, and, and it's, this has always been the case, but maybe a little more. So now there's, there's always people who have more money than sense. There's always more people who think that, you know, going into turn one at Lime Rock in April is like, you know, the last corner on the last, you know, lap of the 24 hours of Le Mans. Right. You know, you've always got those people out there and, and maybe it's a little more so now. But uh, but I still think that the cleanest racing you're going to find is SCCA racing. Uh, so, that, you know, it's it's maybe not as good as it used to be, but it's it's still there. Uh, it's, it's, 
it's always fun to talk with the family aspect of racing because that's so much of what the SCCA is, whether it's, you know, husband and wife, father and son, father and daughter, whatever the case may be. Uh, it, the, the, a race weekend for the vast majority of SCCA folks is a family affair. And whether it's your, your born and blood family or whether it's your SCCA family, it's a family affair. And, and that seems to be what keeps us all coming back year after year after year, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is. Is that wh- where, where do you rank those relationships for you as far as your lifelong relationships? Are they up there with, with some of the best you've ever had? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, some of the best people I've ever met. I've met in the paddock of a racetrack. Yeah, absolutely. When, when did the motorcycle thing happen? <laughs> well, that started in 2014. Okay. And it started out as a bucket list thing. Okay. Because before, way back before I went to work at Lime Rock, the first live racing I ever went to was up at Briar. Okay. And it was the motorcycle Father's Day races. Remember okay. those epic Father's Day weekends up there when they oh, were yeah. burning the buildings and the woods and bikes and everything else? I've heard that, the legend. Oh, it the legend pales in comparison to the reality because I was there for a couple of them. Sure. And, um, I remember I signed up through a local motorcycle shop and I think for like 50 bucks for the weekend and free admission, I worked the pit in gate off at the track. So, you know, you're right up close and personal watching the races, watching the various riders coming through the bikes coming and going and stuff. And I was like, wow, I wish I could do that. Yeah. The balls to do that. This looks like such a friggin' hoot. Well, fast forward, I kind of got away from that world, from the two-wheeled world, got into the four-wheeled. And then in whenever it was, 2006, I think, when gas prices went up, that was my excuse to buy a street motorcycle. Right. And I started riding that and became proficient again and said, well, you know what? I'd like to do a track day because, you know, bucket list, whatever. And I went out to New York Safety Track out in um, oh, near Oneonta, New York. And I rented one of their bikes and it was just, you know, it was really, I got addicted. I mean, I trundled around bolt upright and it was just, yeah, I was addicted. Pretty cool. So when did Briar become, cause, cause I usually say things like this on, on the podcast, for those of you who are young, <laughs> you know, Briar was something, but now in, in this particular case, Briar was gone even before I got to the Northeast. So I can't use for those of you who are young because I'm not young and I don't remember Briar. Was that where New Hampshire International Speedway is now? Is that the yes. same location essentially? Yes. Just yes. they tore that down and built New Hampshire? Mm-hmm. Turn six at the current New Hampshire was actually turn. Yeah, it was six back then. Okay. So they actually used part of that course. Okay, so the current road course configuration in New Hampshire still has at least a little bit of the old Briar track. Correct. Okay, I'm sure it's been resurfaced since then and all of that. But oh, yeah. okay, because yeah. I, I had heard about Briar, but by the time I had come to the Northeast in, in 1999, uh, Briar was already long gone and, and mm-hmm. New Hampshire was there. So, so, so you, you uh, and now motorcycling is what would you say, half of your racing now? Yeah, it actually ended up kind of because of because of circumstances, it ended up taking a bigger role than what I intended it to. I mean, I initially went from okay, it's a bucket list thing to okay, I can see some real skill sets coming from it because every person I've ever met who raced motorcycles was a phenomenal road racer. Mm-hmm. And I could see why, because the it is the hardest motorsport you'll ever learn. Okay. And I actually found a bunch of SCCA people like Lou Waddell, for example, who had crossed over into doing track days when I started doing the track days. So I started doing just track days. Um, And at first I only did a couple a year, uh, not much. And then I decided if I'm going to get, if I'm going to make any strides in learning how to do this, I need to do more. So in 17, I think it was, I started committing to doing more and I began to notice a real noticeable noticeable improvement in the four-wheeled stuff wow interesting it was noticeable uh, huh. one of the big things was your focus my focus used to slip easier if you lose your focus on two wheels you die yeah so believe me you keep focus for for 15 or 20 minute sessions 30 minutes feels like it's forever right right 
uh, I started noticing that I was reading racetracks differently than I used to in a car. You see them differently in a bike. Sure. And I began to understand differently how corners tie together, how one corner leads to this corner, to that corner, how they all flowed. And my lap time started coming down and the way I was driving improved. Right, right. So, you know, now I'm like, this really, really made a difference. So it, it has become a, a real, a real tool. Cool, cool. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get this week's SCCA news. Uh, we're going to talk about the transition from IT to national racing and going to the runoffs. And I think there's an, a book we need to talk about as well that has some car stuff in it. We'll do all that when we come back on Inside the SCCA. Welcome back to Inside the SCCA. Here's the week's headlines. The SCCA has announced its 2022 Time Trials National Tour schedule. Here are the dates. March 26th to the 27th at Carolina Motorsports Park. April 23rd to the 24th at Eagles Canyon Raceway. May 12th to the 15th, Time Trials Nationals at NCM Motorsports Park. July 1st and 2nd at Thompson Speedway Motorsports Park. July 16th and 17th at Gingerman Raceway. August 6th and 7th at New Jersey Motorsports Park. August 27th to the 28th at Pittsburgh International Race Complex. October 29th to the 30th at Buttonwillow Raceway Park. And November 5th to the 6th at Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta. Registration is open for the SCCA's National Convention. The convention will be virtual again this year. Opening day is January 21st and run through the 29th. Like all convention, the program includes the SCCA annual meeting, club award presentations and announcements, and the induction of the recently announced 2022 SCCA Hall of Fame class. You can get more details and register by going to SCCA.com. Those are the headlines for Inside the SCCA. I'm Alex Blansky. Welcome back to Inside the SCCA. My guest today is Stephanie Funk. We're talking road racing, motorcycles. We've got a bunch of stuff to get to still and uh, great conversation so far. We'll, we'll keep it going here. So you started in the early uh, in the in the 1990s with your four wheel racing. You didn't get to the runoffs until 2017. I think I know why. But t- but but humor me. You were you were an ITC driver an ITB driver with Hondas back when those cars weren't eligible for production classes. And then all of a sudden SCCA made that a thing. And I suspect that's when you started going for more nationals and ended up at the runoffs. Is that kind of how it worked? Kind of. Okay. Some of it also was just pragmatic. I mean, I had many years in there where we would only do one or two races a year. You know, we both were working, what have you. Sure. So we would do one or two, keep our licenses, or we would go and do road trips. Um, we literally drove out to uh, Road America for a weekend for a, a double regional. And Ed drove one day in the car, I drove the next day, and then we drove 24 hours back. So yeah. silly stuff like that. Sure, sure, sure. But uh, the the interesting thing is I'm hearing lots of talk these days about how in some areas the IT classes are are dying away and, and a lot of those cars switched over to production classes. Uh, do you think that was a smart move for the SCCA to, to, to make that change happen where those Hondas and, and all those other and the Nissans and everything were all of a sudden now eligible for production classes? I do. I, I, th- I think there might be some hardcore um, little British car guys who might not be happy about it, but it did boost the numbers a lot. Right. Um, I do wonder if they might not be better served bringing back G production as well. If they're worried about, you know, mixing so many of the tin tops in with the, with the more fragile fiberglass cars. But for many years, don't forget people in IT, a lot of people did talk about wanting to go to the runoffs and right. it, the whole spirit of the class was, no, this is a regional only class. We have to keep the cost down. This is why this class was made. We can't turn around and change it. So this became kind of a workaround for a lot of people. Right. Right. And and then the, the club kind of changed its model for how it did races where kind of the line started to blur between regional races and divisional races and national races. And there weren't as many places to go. You know, it used to be with when it, when there were actual regionals, 
you know, there were places where only IT cars could race. And then there were races where if you didn't have a national class car, you couldn't go race there. Now they're kind of all mushed together mm -hmm. and it gives people a lot more opportunities for track time because they can run in all these different races. I, so I, I, I get how we got there. And I also get how some people wished it hadn't gone there and how it's been a great opportunity for others. So, so when, when you started that transition from regional onlys with the IT cards into the production stuff, what kind of a learning curve was that for you? Uh, it wasn't really. And okay. initially it came about for pragmatic reasons. We were sharing a car and we both wanted to run and Ed wanted to chase. Uh, he wanted to go into ITB okay. and, and chase a championship in that. So we're like, okay, I can double dip in H production. So we stuck some tape in the car and I ran a bone stock IT car in H production. Okay. And that little, that damn little car was so forgiving and, and everything that it, it allowed us to go to a, it gut Ed and actually got Greg and me to the runoffs one year as well. Um, but yeah, we were able to use it in a bunch of ways. So how much changes, how many changes did you make when you ran it in H production versus IT? Was there a lot of work or did you guys just put different stickers on it and go? Different stickers early yeah. on. That's literally all we did. We would pull the tape off of, off of one class designation and put it on the other one. Right, right, right. At some point in time, though, did you put more of a, a, a dedicated H production car together? Yeah, we did. It's now we now have a fully built H prog car. Um, okay. Limited prep, but um, yeah, it's it would we couldn't run it in in IT in the trim that it's in now. Right, right. How competitive was the H production car when it was essentially an IT car running in H production? <laughs> uh, I can recall Ed getting on the podium at a majors down at uh, Summit Point, I think, or with VIR, I think it wow. was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that like I said, that little car just it took a licking and kept on going. Did you did you, did he even put the slick tires on it, or did he run the production yeah, tires? No, no, we we ran we ran the slicks. Okay, so that was the one upgrade that was pretty easy because it was just slapping on a new set of wheels. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I, it's always been something I've thought about having fun doing is trying to double dip with with that combination, and I was just curious what kind of giveaway you would be be doing when you went to the production side and so i can't remember what the weight was if we took put weight in and out of it i don't remember the weight differences between the class but um you know yeah. i don't recall having to do a heck of a lot to it in the, back in the early days when we were sure. running it so yeah i would have thought the it car would have been a lot heavier than the production car yeah so i, yeah. I would think that you would probably wouldn't be able to take enough weight out of it yeah. easily <laughs> to get it to h production minimum weight so uh, going up to me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, racing in the majors to get yourself to the runoffs in 17 and 18. Uh, tell us about that, that journey for you. Uh, we had, we built this particular car that we're, that we're running, that we're running now. It's a fully built car and Ed competed it in 15. And then in 17, when I ended up going to, well, Indy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, it was a bit different because we went to all majors. I'm trying to remember here. So bear with sure. me. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> went to all majors. Um, the car was definitely built well, set up well, prepped better. I was starting to get some two-wheeled stuff under my belt. So okay. I began to notice uh, an appreciable difference in what, I, what was happening out there. Uh, at Watkins Glen, I believe that was 16 at Watkins Glen. I ended up winning, was it 16 Watkins Glen? Yeah. I ended up winning the race out there and came really close to the track record. In nice. That nice. And there was definitely a difference in how things were going. Uh, my, one of my first, my first time in that car ever actually was uh, in Summit Point 2016 and it was kind of a screwed up start of that race because uh, as we were going out on for the for the pace lap, one of the hood pins hadn't gotten fast and the hood's trying to fly up. So I dropped back thinking I'm going to pull into pit lane, get the hood put down. As I dropped back from the pack, here comes a deer leaping over the, the embankment, bounces across the track in front of me. I'm like, oh, holy shit, I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah. Pull in, they fasten it down. I go to go out and the worker wouldn't let me out. 
it would turn out there was there was confusion there. They should have let me out. Sure. They there was a wave off. And I'm sitting in there and the worker's going, no, 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 don't, you know, don't go, don't go. You'll just be playing catch up. Don't go. And he's standing square in the middle of it. So I'm like, okay, well, here they come. They turn me loose. They take the green. I take off. I'm dead last behind them all starting from a standstill. We did have a full course yellow, which helped, but I went from last to, I passed absolutely everybody. I didn't realize about the wave off. I thought that they had had two pace laps. So I take the checker thinking I won and I was last. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Cause on the wave off, you know, oh. the, the, the race starts on a wave off and they should have let me out, but yeah. there was, there was some confusion. There was some miscommunication with, with the tower and the worker and they wouldn't let me out. And, but still I had literally never been in that car. I was only a few months post post operative from having my right shoulder repaired. So my arm was a noodle by the end of the race. Mm. And I was like, holy cow, this thing is on rails. And it just, yeah. That's pretty awesome. So that's pretty awesome. So let's talk for a second. You know, you are obviously a lady in a sport that's predominantly male. Yes. And we talked about this before. It's like, it's certainly a thing it's, and, and it's, I'm sure, better today than it was when you started how, how how did that mold your experiences what or, or change your experiences as you were coming up through the ranks well to start out with I was always a, a real tomboy and in fact when I was one of the jobs I did at Lime Rock for quite a while was maintenance where mm-hmm. I was driving the grader and you know doing all that type of thing so I really wasn't intimidated by by people male or female trying to push me around um it is definitely been improving as the years go on. It's, it's never been terrible. Let's I'll start with that. It's never been terrible. And in fact, for the most part, what I noticed is like, anytime I go to the race alone, I did less work than if I went with my crew because I'd turn around and people would be like, Oh, let me help you. And they'd be running over changing wheels. I'm like, Oh, cool. You know, (laughs) (laughs) whatever. Um, But by and large, I really can't say I had a lot of negative experiences. Uh, There were some old school attitudes occasionally uh, i've been called a skirt which you know kind of made me chuckle like okay <laughs> mm. i don't wear them but whatever <laughs> um, but i think well the only thing i can really n- say point out that i did notice was there are times when you may have something that happened on track and you have to have a discussion afterward with the other driver and sometimes I think they were a bit taken aback by the fact that I would come up to them and say, you know, ABC, but I don't believe in doing the passive aggressive thing of running around boohooing in my Cheerios and saying, Oh, nothing's wrong. It's like, Hey, look, you know, this happened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You work it out, you shake hands, you're done. Right. And, and there were some drivers who were definitely surprised by that, but you know, by and large people have been great. Um, they treat me like anybody else out there. I treat them like anyone else out there and right. That's how it should be. Good. Good. I believe that you are the first SCCA female majors champion. I don't think there was anybody before you because majors is still a relatively young thing. Okay. I hadn't thought about that, but, uh, I went through and couldn't find another one that, so there might be someone else. Uh, but, uh, but in my, my, my bit of research just to, before we came on. So, you know, there's something about that. And then, so the, the other thing I was going to ask you is, is, and I asked this to everybody because growing up as a motorsports geek, racing at Indy is something that I never thought I'd ever be able to do, you know? Mm-hmm there was only one race a year at the Indianapolis motor speedway. And that was the Indianapolis 500. And I knew that I was not an Unser or an Andretti or, you know, didn't have deep pockets to, to get there. So I figured that was never going to happen, you know, and then back in whatever it was, 16, 17, they announced that they were going to take the runoffs to India. And I was kicking myself because I wasn't in a position to go. And then they did it again. And I wasn't in a position to go again, but not about me. Let's stop talking about me. Uh, but, but so every time I, I talk with someone who has had the opportunity to go as a club racer to the Indianapolis motor speedway, first off, as you're going through the tunnel, what's going through your mind? Um, in my case, 
it's a little hard to explain, but I wasn't all that hung up on running indie. I mean, don't okay. get me wrong. It's a storied track. It's a wonderful track. What had been going through my head leading up to that event was all the logistics, the towing out there, the, you know, finding a place to stay, the prep, the this, the that. I was more concerned with the fact that it was going to be such a long tow to get out there. I was also concerned with the fact that there were so many people that registered and the paddock was going to be super tight and, you know, worrying about will we be able to fit into our paddock spot, that kind of thing. Um, going through the tunnel wasn't so much when seeing first time I was up on top, of, I believe it was a Honda building and looking down at the main straightaway. First of all, I was surprised at how narrow the straight looked because of the grandstands on either side. I mm -hmm. hadn't, hadn't pictured that before. Um, and then it, it, realizing that that stripe of bricks was the famed indie bricks. That was also kind of a, that was definitely a moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, there were definitely some, some moments there, but for the most part, honestly, they were a little bit overshadowed by the logistics of getting out there and getting ready for it. And right. including our epic stop at Erie, Pennsylvania on the way out. <laughs> Is that a story you can tell, or is that a story that we shouldn't tell on? on no, the podcast? I, can, I, can, I can tell it. I can. I think I can tell it. It's pretty much G-rated. Um, okay. So I I planned the trip out, and I said, okay, you know, here's Erie, Pennsylvania. That'll be however many eight hours or so into the trip. Here's a hotel right off the highway. You know, rates were good. Getting in and out with our trailer is going to be good. So I booked it. So we pull in, we get parked, we come out, we go trudging in there, and. There are all these women walking around and they're dressed up, so to speak. And I kind of look around and I'm not paying much attention. And the clerk says, oh, are you are you with the group that's here? Now, mind you, I'm in like grubby jeans and, and Timberland boots and that kind of thing and T-shirt. And I'm like, oh, no, we're just passing through. She said, oh, with your last name, I thought you were with this group. And that's when I began to realize there was an awful lot of fishnet stockings and platform shoes. <laughs> It turns out there was a an a, exotic dancer competition being held nearby. And that particular hotel was hosting most of the competitors. And they were currently in the lobby getting ready for the shuttle to go over to Candy's, spelled with a K. And I heard the clunks as the collective jaws of my team hit their chests when they realized what was going on. Mm. So, you know, we get up to our room. I'm like, oh, my God. And I, I posted on Facebook, said something about, oh, dear God, I just booked, I booked a room at a hotel that's having an exotic dancer competition. I'm going to lose my crew. Well, I thought SCCA was going to lose half their competitors because everybody was lighting up. Where is it? What are the coordinates? I'm leaving the ah, I'm coming back. Ah. <laughs> I was like, this wasn't even on purpose. <laughs> You know, it's funny because as soon as you said Erie, Pennsylvania, epic, I remember, I don't remember, can't remember what was, what the story was, but I do remember that post. And, and now, and, and, and the minute you said with the, with the, with your name, it went boom, 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 boom. It like my, my, my brain lit yeah. up. And I'm like, oh, I know this story. Yeah. The announcers are talking about it at Indy too. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Oh, that's just fantastic. <laughs> See the stuff that we get to do within the club. It's yeah. some good stuff. It's some good stuff. So you're, that was the year you finished, I think, 10th at the runoffs, right? Yes. yes. And that, that was, um, we were the last race on the last day because like you said, the allure of Indy, there were a lot of people who showed up with cars that maybe, maybe weren't the best suited for the runoffs, but they came and did it. Yeah. But the, by then there was an, awful lot of parts and oil coming off those cars sure so it, it by the end of the race it got really quite interesting yeah um, you know but we at the first turn on that particular course is difficult and oh I, yeah i got caught out on that because i had like five cars wide in front of me all trying to get down to where it's two cars wide and they all came together and i could still see uh one of the little british cars coming all four wheels off the ground as a tin top squeezed in between them yeah and those of us behind, we came to like a dead stop and a bunch of people ran down and jumped the course on the inside and got ahead. And so I had to reel myself back in from however many positions I lost. So sure. I made it back up to 12th. I drove the car in the trailer. I only slid off the course a few times and managed to not hit anybody. So yeah. a success in the end. 
That's a good race. That's a good race. I remember you saying earlier that uh, from looking up from the t- up top that that main straight looks narrow mm-hmm. and it it's not that narrow until you get to the end of that main straight and have to make that right hand turn. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that and is narrow. The other thing about those stands on either side, uh, I believe it was Chris Alden blew his motor in uh, one of the one of the qualifying sessions in the main straight and sure. coming out of the last corner back onto the main straight. You could not see. It was pea soup because the oh. smoke didn't dissipate. Sure. And we were all like, oh, where is he? Where is-? Fortunately, he had pulled all the way over against the wall. Which sure. Was- but there was a few moments where it got a little dicey in there on that one. Well, I would think with the grandstands on the outside and then the grandstands on the inside, if there's not a real heavy, windy day, there's nothing to blow that smoke out of there, is there? No, there isn't. Wow. Isn't. Hadn't even thought of that. So mm-hmm. cool. So cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're getting to that point where I have to start looking at the clock and I still have so much that I want to talk to you about. So let's take a quick discussion here. There's a book I found Mm -hmm. that uh, that someone I'm talking to may have been the author of. Perhaps there may actually be a couple of them because uh, one of them had to have a pen name because it was totally different. Okay. Okay. um, Last year in the pandemic, I I'd written these previously. And last year with the pandemic, I figured, all right, you know, captive audience, people staying home. So I released two books. Uh, The first one under my name, under SL Funk, is called A Nickel's Worth of Road Measles, which is an auction term, meaning that, you know, about $500 worth of uh, stone chips on the hood. Got it. Got it. And that is a psychological thriller about a, a down and almost out mechanic who has another sense that most people don't have where he actually can see past events if he touches something or, or what have you. And he goes to the auction and climbs in a car and finds out that a serial killer had it. Oh, so there's a whole lot of twists and turns in it, twists and turns that I didn't see coming. Um, a good part of it actually wrote itself, which okay. kind of was a little freaky at the time, but now it's, it's, you know, it's the process. Sure. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased with how that came out and people haven't treated me too strangely since it came out. So, you know. <laughs> and the second book, the second one is called right on main street and that's W R I T E on main street. Okay. And I released it under the pen name of Stevie Lynn. And that one is as different from nickel as night is from day. And as much as it is a, it's tongue in cheek, it's a caper. Uh, I wrote it. I was a, a news reporter here at the local paper. And I remember constantly being at work saying, you cannot make this stuff up. Yeah. You can't make this up. I'm going to write a book because you can't make this stuff up. And I did. Yeah. I, I changed I changed events enough. I changed names. I changed this. I changed that. But a lot of the things that I experienced here came out in that. And it's along the lines of anybody who's ever read a Janet Ivanovich, Stephanie Plum book. Okay. It's not quite as slapstick as that, but it is that lighthearted, you know. Yeah. That type. Now, there's a car component to the first book. Is there a car component to the second book? Not the second book. Okay. Um, okay. The second one is actually on the writer side, the reporter side. Got it. From, Got from it. That aspect. But sure. on the on the first one, yes, the first one was uh, again. He's the main character is an auto mechanic, and he's always really been into cars. That yeah. is, that's been his thing. And now he's he's run into this this whole situation and he can't go to anybody and say, this is what's happening, which I won't divulge. Nope, reasons don't, why, don't ruin it. Don't but, ruin it. We're uh, going to get people to buy the book. <laughs> yeah, I won't divulge reasons why, but he can't. And then because of his own convoluted psychological makeup, he's trying to prove it himself in order to, you know, kind of redeem himself in a way. So, so cool. So cool. Yeah. And where can we find the books? You can find both of them on Amazon, of course. Um, Anyone who would like a little bit more information about either one, I do have a website, which is stephaniefunk.com. At some point when I get to it, I will have the ability to sell directly through the website. But for now, at least you can see what they're about, find where you can buy them, that sort of thing. Right. It's, I'm always amazed at the things I find when I'm researching upcoming guests because uh, I didn't realize there was a book out there. And I figured stephaniefunk.com would have a whole bunch of stuff about your racing and I could do my 
my research through that. And then I found out it's, it's an author's website. So it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll put links to, uh, to both of the books on the podcast page. So if anybody oh, thank uh, you. doesn't uh, have is driving and uh, don't stop driving to grab your pencil, yeah. uh, we'll put links on the podcast page. I, I look forward to, to picking those up and, and, you know, flipping through them. It'll be fantastic. What a great conversation. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. It was, it was fun to catch up. Yeah, it's it's been great. And, and you know, we, we like I said, we're trying to work our way through all the different classes and all the different great personalities that I know and 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 also the great personalities who I don't know, which I'm looking forward to as well. I've right. I've talked with several people in the first episodes who I had never met before. I posted up on the on the Facebook page that I was going to do a podcast and I'm not surprised, but, you know, they're just great SCCA personalities and characters, just like all the great personalities and characters that I know and love from the 30 years I've been doing this. So absolutely. So it's as as fun to catch up with old friends as it is to make new ones. And I I'm enjoying that so much. So thank you. There's literally has not been a race weekend anywhere ever where I have not met somebody new who ended up being just really interesting or really nice or a new friend, so to speak. I mean, literally every single track, every single event, be it two wheel, four wheel, that happens. And, you know, this is my, gosh, I keep losing track. I think it's the eighth region I've been involved with Cal club. Mm -hmm. And right from the start, the first time I moved from my home growing up in the, in the Midwest to Atlanta region, I was like, I've just met new family members today at my first race. I had the same experience when I went to Lime Rock. I had the same experience when I went to VIR, you know, and there's, I can't think of another thing out there. There probably is, but where you can just go to a place, they don't know who you are. You know, you flash this little card that gets you through the door. And if you got the card, they they automatically think you're cool. I am so not cool but I've got the card, which makes me cool. So, and that's really what it's about. And and I'm just so happy that we got a chance to catch up and, and, and talk about things. So thank you. Thank you, Brian. That's going to do it for this week's episode of inside the SCCA. SCCA. Wow. I can't even say it. It's been 30 years. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the Racing Wire podcast network. So you won't miss an episode. It would also be great if you leave a comment and, uh, and a review. That would be fantastic as well. You can follow us on social media to find out who our next guest is and leave a question. It's at racingwire.net. Or you can check us out on the official SCCA Facebook page. There's a new Inside the SCCA every week. Have yourself a great week and go out and play with cars. Inside the SCCA is a presentation of the Racing Wire Podcast Network and Rural 15 Productions. This podcast is not affiliated with, endorsed, or sponsored by the Sports Car Club of America. The views expressed within are those of the host and our guests and not that of the SCCA.